Hi everybody, thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. So welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today we have David, David Ben Moshe. I said that correctly, didn't I? Yep. <laughs> with us. And I've got to tell you, David, you don't know this. Um, I'm very, very excited. So about uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was somehow your name came on my Twitter feed. And I was like, fascinated. I don't even remember what it was. But I was like, Black American Jew living in Israel, fighting for, you know, Israeli citizenship, sign me with, a, with heterodox views. I was like, I need to know this guy. Okay. Then literally that same day, David and I are doing one of our strategy sessions and he's like, oh, guess what? I've got David Ben Moshe and he's going to be on my podcast. And I was like, no, hold up. You've got to share. (laughs) You've got to share, David. I cannot wait to meet you. David was very quick to reaching out. (laughs) Yeah. I don't waste any time. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because my um, my one of my favorite quotes that you know anyone who's received an email from me sees is I love Albert Einstein's quote that um, coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. And so it was just so crazy that literally that day I found you, and you know it was just so fascinating with your story. And David, um, David had also found you. So we're, there's a lot of synergy here. Um, with that said. David, you know, I I kind of introduced who you are. I mean, you are living in Israel. You just, what I found out, uh, you just recently received temporary citizenship in Israel. I'm going to ask you a little- Temporary residency. Residency. Okay. And we're going to ask about that story. But before we do, you know, we always start with what we're drinking. I've got to tell you for David, because, you know, it's later there, you are in Israel. David and I are probably just drinking our coffees. <laughs> did, <laughs> did you bring anything to drink? <laughs> Actually, I made myself some green tea with a touch of honey for this one. Ooh, very nice. Very nice. Well, I know you are also a um, personal trainer, and so you'll be glad to know. Sometimes I will put a shot of whiskey in my coffee, but it is Friday, and I still have a workout to do. So... Uh, <laughs> um, although the child whiskey and coffee is one of my favorite ways to do the coffee <laughs> oh my gosh saturday mornings and, they, and that's now, my plan for tomorrow too. Uh, <laughs> and now in the u.s they've got peanut butter whiskey so put that in your coffee try that one uh i'm allergic to peanuts so i will not do that oh, okay dang okay <laughs> um so okay well, just big question question you know or big picture story Tell us who you are, David. You've so, got a lot to tell. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, like everyone, I've had a long and interesting story. Mine's a little bit different than other people's, but it kind of starts like this. I was raised in Maryland to fundamentalist Christian parents. I grew up, kind of fell away from their faith, fell away from them, went to college, had a terrible experience at college, dropped out. Had to find a way to support myself, which I found a way to, but it was not the most legal way. It ended up in federal prison. In federal prison, I changed my life around completely, found Judaism, learned to study a variety of things. Was released to Baltimore, Maryland, where I became a personal trainer. Was a very successful personal trainer there and did my Orthodox conversion with B'nai Israel Synagogue. 
then decided I wanted to be a physical therapist. I got into physical therapy school, was not allowed to attend. And then since I had been in and was thought I was going, I had already closed down my business and my lease and could move anywhere in the world. So I decided that I would move to Israel. I spent a year studying at Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, just studying Judaism, met my wife. Uh, we got married, I applied for citizenship, and I spent the last three years and a few months fighting for citizenship to the state of Israel. So we were talking, Jennifer and I were talking beforehand, and I was thinking about what questions I asked you on the speech cast and which questions I still had on my mind. I had plenty on my mind. One of them we, we touched upon, but I'd, I'd love to go deeper. You know, um, obviously you have this experience of being incarcerated and then, and then having to pay the price again by not being able to go to physical therapy school and then yet again going to Israel and not being given immediate citizenship, which to me is just a, what we call a shanda in, um, in Hebrew or Yiddish. Um, it's a shame, a disgrace. And um, I, but I, I wanted to ask you about that experience and how it has shaped your views on the criminal justice system. What, what, what have you learned about the criminal justice system that you think needs to be changed? The number one problem I see with our criminal justice system is that it is almost 100% punitive and there's almost zero rehabilitative aspect to it. And which makes a lot of sense on the surface and speaks to a lot of people for what they think that criminals deserve, like, oh, you committed a crime, you should be punished. But the thing that those people aren't thinking about is that you don't just want people to be removed from society when they commit crimes. You also want them to come out and not commit more crimes. The goal is not to just pick people out. The goal is to lower the volume of crime total so we can all be safer and happier. And the criminal justice system is all sticks, no carrots. And when that happens, it just has this long reaching effect where you have these ridiculously high recidivism rates and then you have males being pulled out of families and then people get these networks that are built around prison and it just feeds the criminal system. So now we have a growing criminal justice system and a growing underground criminal system. And that's not a society we wanna build. Right. Have, um, you know, I'm curious if you've, having lived in Israel for three years or so now, um, if you have any comparative sense about the criminal justice system and how that society views criminality and justice compared to how it, uh, the United States views it. In the news media, it seems like they are a lot fairer to criminals in the criminal justice system in Israel. Like they've got more rights and they're treated better. But I do wanna stress that's just based on a few news articles I read, as opposed to the American criminal justice system, which I lived through. So I can like all the worst things about it, like I have like experienced. Hmm. So what, what would be a, 
fairer system? What would that actually be like? Uh, um, you know, I, I know that um, you were incarcerated around, you know, uh, opioid. I think it was a. You've talked about it publicly, so I'm not. I'm not divulging yeah. anything. I know because you. It it's also Newsweek. public record. <laughs> right, right. It was a Newsweek. You wrote about it. Um, and uh, what? What? How would? How would it look differently? Give me. Give us a sense of that. So, the first thing is the way we sentence people for drugs compared to other crimes is just completely out of control. Right. I was reading the news a few weeks ago about um, the officer who murdered George Floyd, I believe his name is Derek Chauvin, getting a sentence of like 22 years. And I was thinking about that because a few days before I was talking to my old cellmate who did 35 years for selling heroin. Mm. Like, how do you get 13 more years for selling a drug than you do for slowly murdering someone on camera? Like, what kind of a system is that? And then when you look at like the sentencing disparities that existed for a long time between crack cocaine and regular cocaine, first we've dealt with this drug problem, like it's a criminal problem, when the truth is drugs are a mental health problem. Incarcerating people with mental health addictions doesn't help them get clean. It just damages them further psychologically. And once we have people in for these large amount of time, we need to give them opportunities to better themselves. Think about you go to college, you study for four years. After four years, you can apply for a job. You've got all these skills. When we know that most crimes, especially these drug-related crimes, are committed for financially motivated reasons, and you have someone incarcerated for 5, 10, 15, even 35 years, how can you be released after a sentence like that and not have skills and a job waiting for you? Like, we have the time to educate you and find you a job instead of just kicking you out with no plan and no skills, hoping you'll figure it out from yourself and you won't return to the one thing you do know makes money and the one place where you won't be discriminated against against your criminal record, which is the drug market. So Michelle Alexander wrote this very uh, significant book called uh, The New Jim Crow. And um, and she she writes in it, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the criminal justice system is not broken; it's operating just as it was designed. Now, I I'm not sure I agree with that in entire its entirety. I, it may be broken in some cases, maybe it's designed to discriminate in other cases. But she's she's implying that it was specifically meant to uh, to warehouse black people and to um, and and it was meant to be a new Jim Crow as the title suggests um, is that your take on it is, am I wrong that it might be more complicated than that I think that's more complicated than you realize and here is why when we look at the history of the drug laws 
it seems like there's a fair amount of evidence that the people making the laws intentionally made the drugs that were being used by communities they wanted to target illegal while leaving other drugs not illegal. One of my favorite examples of the insanity of how we approach drug laws is the alcohol versus marijuana case. It is not unfair for someone to say that, you know, marijuana is a drug and it should be regulated and it's dangerous and people shouldn't be using it. If that person believes the same thing about something like alcohol, which as far as the science has shown is more addictive and more dangerous and more likely to cause people to do violent behaviors. But when one, you can just go to the liquor store and buy, and the other has to be bought illegally, there are these ramifications that happen naturally. And we know this because we did the alcohol experiment with prohibition. And you get all of the same violence and all of the other problems when you make it illegal instead of just making it legal, regulating it, and setting up places to treat people who abuse it and have the mental health problem that needs help. So so maybe we can um, go back a little bit to your story, because obviously it's fascinating. I think probably... Uh, our viewers and listeners want to hear more about it. Um, you, um, how did you, you, you were in prison and you found Judaism. How does a uh, nice African-American boy from Maryland end up uh, finding Orthodox Judaism? So in prison, it was really one of those serendipitous stories kind of I thought about it when uh, Jennifer brought up earlier the story about coincidences and the quote from Einstein so I'm um, locked down in the library so during the lockdown there's no movement we don't know what's going to end time's just passing I finished studying what I planned on studying in the library and it's just hours and hours and so we're all getting restless I'm walking around I see a guy who's sitting and studying and quiet and doesn't seem to be bothered. I walk by him a few times and like look over his shoulder and see he's reading something in a language I don't understand. Some more time passes, I pass him a few more times and eventually I ask him what he's reading. And he says he's reading the Bible and the language is Hebrew. And then I noticed something interesting and I asked a question. And this question went on to eventually changed my life. And the question was, I noticed at the bottom of the page, there's all these text boxes. They asked him what those were. And he explained to me the idea of Parshanut, people explaining what the verses mean. So it's like, oh, you know, this guy says it means this, this guy disagrees and says this, this guy is writing much later, talks about this guy is wrong. And the idea that you would have a religion that held its holy book and wanted to hold on to so many opinions of what it meant in different interpretations, because they're all worth studying, blew my mind. Because being raised fundamentalist Christian, my thoughts on religion were, you believe it like this, or you go to hell, and those are your options. 
And the idea of looking at different opinions, not saying there's one right answer and having a religious system built around a culture like that really spoke to me. I studied it more and eventually was like, you know, this is for me. Um, I'll ask one more question. Uh, maybe Jennifer will, have, will take it from here. I'm loving um, listening, so keep going. Okay. So um, one of the, I have a, a couple of them, but I'll, one of the things that um, makes me a bit sad is in the current ideological environment, I worry that inside and outside the Jewish community, we're sort of undercutting what I like to call debate culture. It's sort of um, that I think probably grows out of that tradition of text that you just cited in the Parshnut, that um, that the, the community extols, it lifts up the idea of debate for the sake of heaven. And that that ended up not just a religious attribute, but a cultural attribute that I grew up with as well, where people were debate issues and you learn through debating other people. And um, I, I was struck um, that in your piece on uh, in Newsweek that you really took the task the idea of, of cancel culture. And, and by that, I don't just mean, you know, someone gets fired by expressing a view that's unpopular, but, um, but it, it's a censorious culture, a culture that makes it hard to debate, that makes it hard to challenge ideas. What is your experience about that? And do you, do you, do you agree with me that debate culture itself is something we should promote and preserve? I think the culture of debating and talking openly and discussing what we believe is the most important thing that we have as human beings. It is the thing that allows us to learn and adjust to reality as it is. When you're stuck in your own mind or you're around people who are repeating the same things, you get blinded and you start trying to make the world fit your beliefs instead of fitting your beliefs to the world we have to live in. And keeping that culture of debate alive gives you the opportunity for someone else to shine the light somewhere that you didn't notice and bring something new into your awareness so that you can reform your beliefs and thoughts and adapt and really be the fullest human being that you can be. You know, I've having getting to know David and getting to know, you know, I'm familiar with Judaism, but I myself am, am not Jewish. And I love that idea of the debate culture. And I think that we've lost that in general, uh, more, you know, Judaism aside, I think that we allowed more for open dialogue, you know, in years past, we allowed more for offense, you know, offense is actually in some ways a good thing, you know, I mean, that's what kind of jogs you to um, think about things differently. And so I wonder, you know, is this you now you're in Israel looking from Israel back into the United States? I mean, do you think that we have a, is there a solution? Uh, is it getting worse? What is your view from from Israel on how we are communicating in, in the United States specifically these days? 
My view from Israel looking at the United States is it definitely looks like it is getting worse. But I do believe it's solvable. Mm -hmm. And I believe the solution comes from something that can sound a little bit contradictory. And that is that people need to take responsibilities for their beliefs as individuals instead of letting groupthink run the show. When a specific issue comes up, your knee-jerk reaction is always going to be like, what do the people who think like me believe? So if you're you know, on the left, you go, oh, what do other left people think about this? If you're on the right, you go, oh, what do other right people think about that? And you want to repeat their beliefs to stick with the crowd, but you need to evaluate that issue as an individual issue, separate from everything else, and make your own decision based on your values as to what it really means and what you think about it. And that contrasts with the other big problem that I see in America, which is it seems like the individualism, as far as people's rights, has taken them to a point where we're not seeing ourselves as one collective society where people it's easy well i'm okay then things are good and the only thing i should be concerned about is you know my own personal economic stability my own personal neighborhood and not thinking about you know your neighbor someone down the street some other side of culture uh, country and we need to also think about as a collective what is best for everyone and that means personal sacrifice it seems like people in america don't want to make the personal sacrifice as much anymore well i just i I really like that because i'm struggling too with um the how we lift up the individual and individualism and personal responsibility and whatnot, all things that I believe in, which by the way, have become turned into kind of dirty words, individualism, but the individual in the collective and the individual committing themselves to uh, collaboration. And and you're right. You know, we, we either, it, it's this weird place where we either identify with a group, but we don't contribute to a group. You know, I yes. mean, does that make sense? We, we have <laughs> that, this group exactly. identity, but we, we're not contributing in any, I think, meaningful way that creates community. I, so I hope that it's easy. I mean, my, you know, I think that there is a solution. Uh, I, you already mentioned this. My concern, though, is I think the solution starts on how we teach our kids. And I don't know that right now, my, one of my biggest concerns is we are teaching <clears throat> this kind of group think in a lot of our, that's kind of seeped into our education space. And, and so it's so much easier to create a habit you know, with our kids and create that co- collaboration, but also that personal responsibility than it is to break a habit where if we teach something younger and then all of a sudden we're like, well, wait, no, that's not how you're supposed to work in society. Then you're, you're, the, the result is reactive instead of proactive. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't know. That those are kind of my thoughts. I think there's I want to I want to push back a little bit on yeah. something you said because people say this a lot, and something I think needs to be looked at more deeply. We often say the solution is we need to teach our kids as if we're not going to be able to solve the problem or make improvements ourselves. The problem with that, in my mind, is that kids learn by watching and emulating. Mm -hmm. Teaching our kids really starts with changing ourselves. We can try to teach them whatever values we want, but if we teach them and they look up and see us doing the exact opposite, they're gonna do as we do, not as we say. Right, no, 100%, 100%. And I do see, I guess on that, that I do see some positive movements right now. So for example, in the United States, you've got Braver Angels that is, uh, you know, mainly adults getting together. It's around polarization. It's around red, blue, you know, politics. You've got the Heterodox Academy, which was mainly focused on university students, but bringing in heterodox ideas. So I absolutely agree. But I think that it's harder because we have got, we're dealing with Braver Angels, with Heterodox Academy. We're dealing with adults who've already been socialized into this group think. And then now they're modeling for our kids the same thing, right? And so if we can find that place to model for our kids, Hmm. That open inquiry, that open mindedness, what you guys were talking about with Judaism, mm-hmm. the um, you know debate is we, it's okay to disagree. Mm-hmm. Debate is a good thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and you brought up another really good point. Where you talked about everyone wants to be part of a group, but they don't want to give to the group, which is one of the big causes, I believe, of polarization, mm-hmm. because we have this election system where there's like layers of election. Like, you know, before the general election, you've got the primary elections. And in general elections, we have low voter turnout, like 60, 70%. And then you drop down to the primaries, and it becomes even lower. But you can't vote for some of those that make it past the primaries. And only the extreme elements care enough to show up in droves to vote in the primaries. And that's how we get these more extreme candidates who make it to the general election. And all of a sudden it feels like it's your only choice. No, it's not your only choice. The problem was, was you offset your responsibility to what direction the group should be going by skipping the primaries. Mm. Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of work to do to get people to start understanding and taking that entire political process seriously. Um, so one of the things that we spoke about and you offered such a great quote that I actually asked somebody, you know, uh, to cut that specific quote out. It was so well put is complexity of, of the current social situation. Um, you know, we're this current discourse that I think Jennifer probably was referring to around, race and racism seems to want to boil down everything to systemic racism as the one cause of all disparity. And some of the pushback is, is, wait a second, it's more complicated than that. And if we try to boil it down to one thing, what we'll do is a disservice to the people we're supposedly trying to help because we won't 
actually be able to address those problems effectively because we're misdiagnosing them. We're, we're reducing this complex social phenomena to, to one thing when it is actually more complicated than that. Do you have any wisdom on that? Like why, um, how should we look at disparity? Should we look at it from one lens that it's uh, that it's caused by systemic racism, or should we try to broaden our understanding of why we see disparity in in the United States and, by the way, in Israel or any society that we might live? Right. So I'm gonna bring the conversation back to someone that Jennifer brought up at the beginning, Albert Einstein. So my favorite Einstein quote is make everything as simple as possible, but not any simpler. And boiling down all the problems in the world, even all the problems in America to racism is very clear to me making it too simple. It is a, what I call multifactorial problem. When we talk about why any one group is being held back and can't advance as being treated unfairly. And to really fix that, you have to spend time understanding the problem. Yes, racism is a part, but there's also their internal culture. There's also the history. There's also economic factors that go into. There are so many factors to any of these problems and you can't just fix one issue and expect the entire thing to get fixed. You have to address them all. And you also have to look deeper at root causes instead of just the face value events that we're trying to stop. A good example of this I like to use is there is the current push after the murder of George Floyd to change the laws to make them more equitable about how blacks are treated by the police. The laws aren't the problem. And like a congressional coming through, passing a new law saying it is illegal for the police to treat mistreat Blacks compared to anyone else is not going to solve the problem. There are so many factors that lead up to an encounter like that. And we can start chipping at them one by one, but overt racism might be one, but certainly not the only one. And as we understand more of the different factors that go in, we can start seeing real solution and change and keep this advancement, which we've had going for quite a long time. It's not been going fast by any means, but I'm listening to a podcast with, I forget who, but he gives this really great quote about being Black in America. He goes, yes, it is not perfect right now to be Black in America. Things are not 100% equal, but if you have to pick between now to be a black person in America or any other time in American history, you pick now because it is clearly and demonstrably better. Things have gotten better. And the fact that some people get hung out for saying, you can't even say that things have been improving. Like there's no slavery. 
there's no actual Jim Crow laws. Like things are getting better. Like we are improving. It's just slow. And we don't want to stop that process from moving forward. And we do want to accelerate as much as we can. But sometimes by trying to accelerate things, you end up slowing them down in the long run. And sometimes rewinding them back to places they were before without even realizing it. I want to go into some sensitive territory for a second. Um, so John Wood, who is someone that Jennifer knows, he, Woods, he, he, he is the head of Better Angels. He's an African-American thought leader, writer, wrote a piece in Aereo magazine um, about, I don't know, a year or so ago called The Pivotal Irony of American Racism. And what he what he argues is that, you know, you can if you, you know, racism was obviously a, an overwhelming factor for black people for the most of the history in the United States from slavery, which was almost a unique sort of evil, because in addition to enslaving people, which is evil in and of itself, it also stripped them of their home culture, their native culture. So yeah, they were, is, I think, one of the worst long term effects that we don't recognize at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it leaves a that itself left an imprint on on the psyche of black people. And then, you know, then, of course, there was um, there there was Jim Crow and and many other things between Jim Crow and, and the end of slavery, obviously. Um, and then there was the uh, then there was the dissipation of the American manufacturing sector where a lot of black people were were working and so you had this tremendous job loss as well and you see some of then the problems start to set in and his argument is racism obviously defined the American black experience for for many years but it was sort of the legacy of all that in the and the um, destruction of the manufacturing sector that really decimated black life as we as we knew it until then and that while racism still explains certain things and there are certain structural realities you now have to take a look at the at the culture that was left by that in certain segments i mean i, I think we should acknowledge the fact that two-thirds of the african-american community today are not living in poverty they're they're they, they're in the middle class so there's been even on that front there's been tremendous progress but still um you have to now be willing to take a look at culture, even if the, that culture was a result of the horrific conditions that that black people face in America. And that's a compassionate look to take a compassionate look at culture in that way, not as a way of laying blame, but as a way of saying, look, we we know this was perpetrated against you. And we know that you had to adjust to these horrible conditions but we now need to take an honest and compassionate look at culture so we understand its role in the continued disparities and problems faced in the inner city and so forth. How, how, do, you, how do you think about that discourse? And, and what is it, is it too fraught to have? Does it lead to racism among whites that we should try to stifle? Or do we need to have that conversation because it's true, and, and you're more likely to uh, take us in the right direction as well. I would like to read the piece in deep, but from your synopsis, it sounds like it's true and something that I agree with. The role of culture in Black society in America is one of the key, key things that I think needs to be looked at when we see the current disparity 
between Blacks and most other groups. One of the examples I like to use is this. One third of African-American males will end up with a felony in the United States of America. The rates for every other ethnic group are so much lower. When you see a number like that, I could only think of two ways that we can really think about that problem. Either A, there is something genetic that makes Black people do criminal behavior, or B, there is something culturally that is producing Black criminals. And I think the answer has to be B, that there is something in the greater American society and within the Black community and part of the criminal justice system, they're all interconnected and are producing people who need to enter the criminal justice system. And looking at all aspects of the culture is key because you can't just say, oh, in this community, they're not doing anything. It's all the outside stuff that happened to them. In fact, that's disempowering. Kind of all the aspects need to be looked at because it's not about laying blame to anyone. Right. It's about fixing the problem. Yes. And whatever we need to do to fix the problem is what has to be done. And if we are afraid to look at certain aspects of the problem, we may miss key, key factors that will hold back progress because we're afraid of offending people. And that's one of the big fears I have when I see the culture of debate and discussion disappearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Eric Smith said something the other day, We, David and I loved it, was we overemphasize the problem and underemphasize the solution. So we're all fixated. A, yeah. <laughs> we're fixated on the problem. It's like, whoa, you know, because no one, not no one, I would say a majority of people don't want, I mean, they want to fight racism, right? But it's like, we've, the problem has become where it's everywhere, you know, we're looking for it. So we find it everywhere and everything. I mean, you know, dogs are racist now, you know, <laughs> instead of actually saying, what do we, what can we do? about this. Um, But I want to go back to something that you said. I'm really into history and genealogy. Uh, I am currently writing a book with a Black co-author. And one of the first things that we did when we got to know each other and start to write with each other, he traced his history back. And like most Americans, he is, you know, he's got a lot of European ancestry as well as African ancestry. So he traced his ancestry back to the, um, I believe it was from Kent, England. Uh, the Twyman, his last name is Twyman, the Twyman that came in. Uh, and so he has, he said to me, he goes, you know, one of the big things that I think that we aren't doing in our society is seeing ourselves in the other, right? So he wanted me trace your history. Well, I mean, you can see I'm pretty vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> but I found, a, you know, through doing that, I found a lot of Black cousins and cousins of other ethnicities and started to, to communicate with them and come together over that familial relationship, despite the differences that we have in, in, in our skin color. And one of the things I've learned through this is I do think it is a tragedy, and you mentioned this, that one of the, the worst things about slavery is that 
a lot of people in the United States cannot trace their heritage back. So, and, and you know, for a lot of white Americans, that's much easier to do. And so you've got that anchoring, if you will. And I wanted to explore that a little bit more with you, but I wanted to give my idea on that though, even though I've gone through this and I've, uh, you know, found my distant cousins and gone through this experience with my co-author. One of my big questions is when do we though say we come together as Americans, whether you're a black American, a, you know, a Latino American, when, when do we say that? When do we stop? When do we let go of the resentment and grudges of not being able to trace our heritage back to Africa or wherever it might be and recognize ourselves in the other and as in fellow countrymen and women? For me, the sooner we can let go of the resentment and grudges about not being able to trace our culture, the better. Like you said, that's one of the things that helps to find the problem, but doesn't help with the solution. When I think of the importance of culture, the first thing that comes to mind is the history of the Jewish people who have kept their culture together so beautifully for so long through so many challenges, which is how you have the ability to have a modern state of Israel 2,000 years later after being spread to the ends of the earth and multiple other kingdoms and empires controlling the land on the same land, speaking the same language and doing a lot of the same things that their ancestors did over 2000 years ago. Like when they do the archeological digs and they find like a tefillin box and it's got, you know, it's like a different size, but it's the same thing used in the same way with the same stuff inside of it that I put on every single day. It kind of ties you into a heritage which can help direct your future actions and instills values that allow you to make decisions that would be good in the long term because a lot of culture stays around at least I believe, because it's effective. And when you don't have that culture to go back to, it's harder to have these templates of how you act in different situations or to look back and find strength in what your ancestors did to do the hard things today that need to be done because we still have a lot of hard things to do to make the world a better place. For Blacks in America, finding that heritage does not have to be done through blood. I don't need to know what exact tribe of people in Africa that I'm the most descended from to know that history, to tap into the power of culture. But I do think that more education on some of the greater periods in African history and black role models from the past that people can use to find strength and to make themselves better will help 
everyone advance. And it's not as easy to find when you don't have the most widely read book in the world that chronicles your history. You can find almost everywhere. But the stories exist. And the work can be done to find it. And we can learn and grow from some of the other great things that have happened in our past. Absolutely. I would say also that, you know, that one of the aims of our book is to talk about um, Black strength and resiliency and heroism. And when we talk, going back to like education, I think a lot of people get confused right now. We've got this debate. I don't know how much you follow it about um, critical race theory in, in education. And a lot of people are saying they're simplifying it, right? And I love the idea of complexity. They're saying, oh, you just don't want to teach history. People who don't like critical race theory say, oh, it's because you don't want to teach history. And that, from at least the people I know, couldn't be farther from the truth. I think that we need so much more, so many more stories of of you know African culture of, of our own culture you know the good bad and the ugly mm. but the way that it's being taught I think is really teaching more this kind of victimization this resentment mindset than it is this oh wow I mean my family fought for I mean it, when we see America now, I mean, the pride that I have in Black Americans and the resilience that they had to fight against slavery, to continue to fight, is like so amazing. And those are the stories that we're telling. And those are the stories that need to be taught and focused on and people need to know like the back of their hand. Mm -hmm. Like again, one of the reasons why the Jewish culture strengthens Jews so much is because we study our history constantly. <laughs> And you just a lot of a lot of times the factor that stops people from achieving things is repetition. We have this insane idea as adults that you hear it, I got it. Mm. That's not how your brain works. Your brain works by you hear it, you hear it again, you hear it again. You hear it again, you hear it again, you hear it again, and it starts to sink in and be internalized. Just because you've learned something once, it doesn't mean it's gonna get that top of mind awareness that changes you. Learning it tens, hundreds, thousands of times over are how something really changes you. Yeah, I, I think there is a lot to learn in our educational system from wisdom of cultures that have been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Um, and uh, part of that is critical thinking as well. And I hope that's another quality repetition in how you internalize a identity and a history is key and the argumentative process that we spoke about that helps you form thoughtful opinions mm -hmm. and to compare what you've learned and what you know to what other people are seeing or in other mm -hmm. experiences are just such critical faculties that we yeah can... and that critical thinking is something i want to harp in on because it is an important balance to the idea of repetition changes you mm -hmm. and the reason it's so important is this the repetition will change you and the way you think which means it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. 
because this repetition about your culture and the positive stories are how your culture strengthens you. But it's also the exact same mechanism that propaganda works by, where we can take something that's just a lie and we can put it in every newspaper every day. And it doesn't take long before everyone believes it is the unarguable truth. And having the dose of critical thinking is how you fight that ability for someone else to program you based on what they want. You need to take responsibility, program yourself with the things that you want. And whenever you hear something that's repeated over and over again, it goes back to that thing I talked about where taking responsibility to think about your beliefs instead of letting the group decide what the official stance is on this and repeating it. Mm-hmm. That critical thinking is the weapon that stops that from becoming a terrible evil. I, I have a question. It's, uh, you're, we've talked about your Jewish journey. We've talked about your, your journey in the, um, in the American criminal justice system. What about your intellectual journey? Uh, you know, I mean, you, you, I know you spent a little time in college, you spent uh, some time in, in prison, and then you've, you went to Israel and you studied Judaism, but you've clearly spent a lot of time thinking about ideas. How did that happen? When did it happen for you? I think it started with my parents. They did two things that are really important in hindsight for me that I want to try to replicate for my children. Mm -hmm. One is there were books everywhere. Mm. Just the basement of the house I grew up in is effectively a library of all the books they collected over the years. The second thing they did is, so they did read to me a lot. And then there was times when like they couldn't read to me. And their solution for that was to like put me to sleep. They would, so this was back in the day before we had like the internet everywhere. They would go to the public library, rent audio books on cassette tape and play those when I went to sleep. So I always fell asleep to someone reading a book. And that is like a habit I still do pretty often today and just things seeping in over and over and over helps you think because you get exposed to different worlds and different ideas that you might not realize how deep that they are. In school growing up, I did not do well. I was actually a very poor student. I graduated high school with like a low C average. I got into my first college basically because I test well. Even though I had a not great GPA, the SAT was really important. And I happened to be one of those people who test well. And I did pretty good on that. But then I also have these learning disabilities, which weren't handled well at that time, which was one of the reasons I dropped out. But I always kept reading and just reading allows you to get into other people's minds. And there's a lot of people out there who are much smarter than me. And I've spent some significant time in their minds by the words they wrote down. Mm, Beautiful. 
You know, that's so interesting. One of the, I mean, there's millions of studies that, that or maybe not millions, but there's a, quite a few studies that say that, you know, the, as a child, the amount of words that you hear makes a difference. And one of the things around that is single parent um, households. You hear more words when you've got two parents in the household. And so, you know, and I'm, that's not even white, black, whatever. I think that that concept of reading and if you are a single parent which i am by the way i just love what you just said um is to is to have like even playing tapes you know that, that yeah, i mean that now we have words. audible you can get when you replace your cell phone you can take your old cell phone download yes. the audible app yeah and play it for your kid right. every night and that is a that's a solution again right. we don't want to look for problems find solutions find and, solutions yeah yeah I mean, I just love that because I was thinking about that going, okay, you know, um, with me, I mean, I'm, I, you know, spent, I'm not a single mother right now, but you know, I spent a lot of time and I wish I'd heard that where I was like, okay, just have my son, you know, listen to extra words because it is so incredibly important for a child's development. And that single parent, I'm sure, and congratulations on making it through that time, but <laughs> that's one of those many, many factors, like the amount of Blacks who have single parent homes, like a single parent home is hard on a kid. It is. Yeah. Like having two parents, whatever those two parents may be, just there's power in numbers. And that's another part of disparity that like doing things to improve that and make life easier for single parents does great things for their children, we support those people who always need our help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the, thinking of solutions. That was a really good solution. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone should have Audible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although I have to say, I'm worried that I'm actually reading fewer books. I'm listening to as many books. I'm certainly listening to a lot of podcasts these days. And I'm wondering what that's going to do to my brain if I if I say, well, I could either read that new book like old fashioned way or if I, I could listen to it. And mm -hmm. more often than not these days, I'm going on Audible and listening to it. And I'm not sure. Is that good or bad? I don't know. I, mean, I think it's still important to spend like time reading. Like I think there's something I just made the jump to the Kindle, which I didn't think I'd like, but I'm liking it more and more and more because it makes it so much easier to do that because like you have these like little pockets and just having all of your books with you makes that easier. Yeah. Going back to the power of reading, one of the most useful things I learned at the beginning of my personal training career, I forget where I learned this from, but he said, if you read related to your career, for an hour a day, in three years, you'll be in the top 10% of practitioners. Mm. In five years, you'll be in the top 1%. And in 10 years, you'll be in the top 1% of the 1%, mm. which sounds too good to be true, but here's the problem. You hear it and go, I can do that. And then you read for an hour, three days in a row, and then you stop. Like an hour a day over three, five years, you learn so much so fast. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons I got to be so successful as a personal trainer so quickly because just I read for an hour a day about exercise stuff. And by the time I got to college, I knew everything. Right. Which had its ups and downs. Cause some friction with the teacher sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Well, this has been um, a very enriching conversation for me, and I'm so glad that we had it and look forward to continuing the conversation with you, David. It's uh, you, you bring such an interesting insight and you have such interesting and important life experiences to share with us as well. Yeah, thank you, David. I'm so glad that our, thank you. the coincidence came together in this podcast and that we're all sitting here. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I had a blast too. And again, the dialogue and debate always has to go both ways. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody have a good day. All right. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.